a new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Coming up on this week's show, the new Sonic trailer is finally here, but does it look any good? Will the PlayStation 5 be going back to cartridges? And we chat Jet Set Willy to Hotline Miami with Shahid Kamal Ahmed. This week's show is brought to you by Retro Gamer, the essential guide to classic games. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 199. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And welcome along to this week's podcast, a show where we talk about everything from the world of classic video games, that golden era when you jump on your BMX and go down Blockbuster and rent a game for your Mega Drive or... Maybe on a Saturday afternoon, go to the seaside and play on the arcades. That's the kind of era that we reminisce about on it this is, show. It is, reminiscing. I'm usually the kid running behind the guy on the BMX. I, I, I was from the Midlands, so I was never, never went down to the seaside, unless it was Skeggy. No, we went, I was seaside, yeah. Well, the thing about it is we've done this now for 199 episodes. Even when I did the intro then, 199. That is, you know, I don't know big is up too much. That is a pretty phenomenal achievement that we've made it this long. I can't believe we turned up every week. I know, yeah. <laughs> it's great. We've done really well. We've done really, really well, I think. And uh, it's really good that every week people tune in, yeah. um, which is absolutely amazing that people are still interested. And also a massive thank you to all our amazing guests as well. Absolutely. Yes. You know, that's a big part of this podcast. Yeah. I mean, when we started doing that, Ravi and I came up with the idea of this show um, on a rather drunken night, I think, in Amsterdam yeah. uh, back in 2015. And the idea always was to kind of explore our you know, childhood gaming heroes and the companies and the, the guys who worked on these games that we grew up playing. And the whole retro community, I mean, since we started this show... It kind of seems a bit like we've rode the wave of retro becoming huge now. Yeah, mm. and I always wanted to have a big archive of like interviews. Yeah. You know, we've had some guests that have actually passed away now. Yeah. And their archive is actually still there, fully available. And I kind of love that about the retro hour. You know, we've got 200 amazing episodes, but also. We started actually doing stuff now that we've hit 200. So we just opened a merchandise <laughs> right. store. Now, I was going to say today, for once, Joe's not the coolest looking guy in the room. It is Ravi <laughs> and his rather fetching retro hour hoodie. We often get people, because we wear them at shows when we go, and yeah. like, oh, where can I get a mug from or a T-shirt or a hoodie? You can actually get these now from our website. Yeah, and I just kind of printed them before but now we're actually on teespring so it's kind of a print on demand merchandise yep. service so we've got a few mugs stickers uh tote bags and kind of stuff like that and you know the range might get bigger in the future we'll see how kind of successful this merchandise store is but you know if you purchase anything guys we would really love to see photos of you 
in the stuff or having your nice cup of tea, your retro setup. Next time you're at a retro show as well, you know, you, you can be proud of the fact that you are, you know, one of the coolest people in the room. I'm hoping the next event when I'm in a t shirt, I can just blend in with the crowd. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thousands of other retro t shirts. So <laughs> if you want to get hold of one, I mean, there is a link in our uh, little bar at the top of our website. Yeah, it just says shop on the retrohour.com. Yeah, it's nip onto there. Now, this week, I mean, for episode 200 next week, we have got a pretty phenomenal guest. I uh, don't want to tease ahead too much, but we're probably talking someone who's famous on the world stage here. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, mean, I, I want to drop a clue, but... Then go on, give, it gives a little clue that oh, people are going to... Go on, a little clue, there a little clue. He likes to smoke. He likes to smoke. <laughs> I like that. He likes to smoke. Uh-huh. He also falls asleep listening to his uh, favourite Retro Hour podcast. Um, <laughs> that's a really good clue, that one. Um Oh, I feel like I feel I like think that's good. it. That's yeah, it. Yeah, We're yeah. to guess. Yeah. He, he used to like to smoke. I put that. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's an incredible episode. We can't believe we actually got this guest next week. But also, I mean, before that, we got this week's show to do, and we've got an incredible guest to talk to this week. Now, our guest today, my word, he's done a lot. Yeah. So I've wanted to have Shahid on the show since the very start. So, yeah. you know, Shahid's kind of worked originally with. You know, Matthew Smith, Jet Set Willie, he yep. did the C64 version of that. He was working with Firebird, so he was mm. very involved in the kind of British bedroom coding scene. But then he, he got into publishing and development, and he ended up working with Virgin Interactive at the time, which were absolutely huge. But then he went into Sony and started yep. doing a very different thing, which was looking at these indie titles. I was going to um, say, he had a really big really big part in the PSP, didn't he? Yeah, well, Vita as well. And he's yeah, done, Vita, sorry. He's done over 100 indie titles uh, for Sony. So that's okay. basically working with the guys, making sure their titles developed, getting it kind of out there and then published on the platforms. And if you think about it, that's kind of changed the gaming world yeah. now because the Switch... There's a lot of indie titles that are actually becoming big titles for mm. appearing on there. And well, that, that model nephew, was kind of built by My Shahid. little nephew was just on Untitled Goose Game over the weekend, couldn't get him off it. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, yeah, that's one of the biggest games yeah. and it's an indie title. So it's kind of a great exploration of how you've gone from bedroom back to bedroom. And he does his own podcast as well, doesn't he? Yeah, he yeah. does his own podcast. A very, very big guy. He's been on um, the Viva Amiga and... Uh, the bedrooms to billions yeah, yeah. Amiga years as well. Now, before we get into this week's stories, I mean, we do need to talk about the new Sonic the Hedgehog trailer that landed midweek. We've had how many tweets and messages we went about that. Have you seen the new one? We'll talk about it in a minute. Before we do, though, let's give a huge thank you to our very loyal supporter and our favourite magazine, Retro Gamer, who are supporting this week's episode of the Retro Hour podcast. Now, I think it's fair to say around the table... We've all read Retro Gamer pretty much since it began. I've read it religiously on every holiday I've been on in the last 10 years, I think yeah, I yeah. have. So it's like my go-to airport magazine. I'm going on holiday, I need a magazine, Retro Gamer magazine, number one, in my hand, under my arm, ready for the beach, every now, time. That's the thing, it's, it's like I just love having a proper magazine. Yeah. That's how yeah. we learn about stuff back in the day, and there is something very nostalgic about it. But the fact that we can walk into, like, as did WH Smith, and now they're on issue 200. So the fact that there is a magazine dedicated to this hobby that we love, that mm. survived for 200 issues on the shelves in news agents all around the world is an incredible achievement. And it is the only magazine monthly dedicated to all aspects of retro gaming. Now, if you love this show, 
I'm sure you've checked out Retro Gamer before, but I mean, they give you exclusive access to developers, giving you behind the scenes stories about games that you loved growing up playing and let you revisit your favorite games of all time. And you often find out stuff that you didn't know. Because they do a lot of like making ofs and the history of like, you know, certain franchises and titles. Yeah, and yeah. You learn so much looking through them. It's really interesting. Now, issue 200 is out right now. And this is a real celebration of all aspects of gaming, isn't it? Yeah, it essentially literally starts in the 60s all the way up to modern day and just analyzes, you know, every single decade, whether it's about, you know, home computers, arcades, home game consoles, handhelds, anything like that. Just goes into amazing detail and just lists off like everything you'd ever need to know about the the last 60 years of gaming. Yeah. And you can see the kind of real quality of writing behind it when they go through these individual periods because, you know, you've got stuff like Al Acorn on here, Nolan Bushnell, you know, David Braddon. It's like... These guys were absolute amazing pioneers, and to have them and have their stories, you know, uh, just looking at an article here by Paul Jury, which is uh, the Big Bang and the creation, uh, Steve Russell and the creation of Space War, yeah, which yeah. was one of the very first arcades. You need to read Retro Gamer magazine if you listen to the Retro Hour podcast. We know that, which is why we've sorted you out with an incredible offer. I don't know how we do it, but we always come up with these really cool... You can't get these it's anywhere Dan, else. I think it's Dan and just his charisma and his charm that he gets these offers for us. That'll be, that must be it. That must be it. But listen, this is what we've got for you this week, okay? And claim this while it's on, because we often get people tweeting us after it's finished going, oh, I missed out. You need to do this right now, okay? So open a new tab in your browser. We want to give you not only Retro Gamer Magazine for six months for just £25... A lot cheaper than you get it for on your local newsagent, but also will include a beautifully retro-styled Bluetooth controller by our good friends at 8BitDo. Now, these are really cool Bluetooth controllers that work on stuff like um, your PC, uh, your Mac. also works on the Nintendo Switch as well. That's awesome. If you're playing yeah, retro I games on that's there. really good. Really, really good value. And they do them in lots of different styles as well. I mean, there's a Mega Drive edition, GameCube, NES, Game Boy editions too. So you'll get one of these worth £30 completely free. So you're talking retro gamer for 25 quid and a £30 controller for free, you know, completely pays for itself. So if you want to claim this, do it right now before it runs out. Nip onto this website, myfavouritemagazines.com co.uk forward slash retro 8 bit do so that is retro number 8 b-i-t-d-o my favourite magazines.co.uk retro 8 bit do I'll put that link in our show notes as well thanks to our good friends at Retro Gamer the essential guide to classic games right see itching to talk about it then the Sonic trailer is here Itching, I don't know, is that scavy or something from <laughs> from the trailer? So you know, what do we think then? This uh, is Sonic's final form. I thought, I thought um, it was actually quite good. Um, yep. Jim Carrey looked quite funny in it, and I, I, I think he looked more like Ace Ventura Mad Funny, right. which is the Jim Carrey that I like. Um, but yeah. yeah, we have talked about it a lot, though, haven't yeah, we? Yeah, <laughs> we've, we've touched on it quite a bit when it first came out, so... Obviously, the big redesign has been revealed. And also, it's cool to see that the leaks that kind of like, you know, leaked about a month ago are actual, you know, that is what he looks like and stuff. But yeah, bottom line, I think he does look a lot better straight away. And it's crazy that they've actually listened to what the fans want. And I'm really, really happy and pleased to see that people are on board with it. Because I think, for me, obviously, big Sonic fan, um, 
it would have been really disappointing for them to put all this money into it, all this time and effort, delay the film by three months, yep. for then people to hate it again. And I've not actually seen anybody hating on it, which is really nice. Well, it was an extended trailer, wasn't it? They yeah. added more scenes in as well, yeah. which we yeah. hadn't seen before, which actually, before the initial trailer, when I saw that, I thought, this is very kiddie. Then I saw a bit more in the other trailer. I was like, okay, you know, there's some adult jokes in there. There's a bit yeah. of crossover. Can I be a bit cynical? Here yeah, we go. go for it, yeah. As someone who's, you know, worked in marketing and stuff for a long time, how much did this, do you think, was planned from the beginning? <laughs> oh. What, to make the eyes bad? <laughs> yeah. Well, I thought this the other day. What if they did intentionally make him look like that? Just to hype up the movie. Yeah. Maybe that makes sense, because we have talked a lot about this movie, and that sent me down a trail. So I've got a link here on Rotten Tomatoes, right. and this is talking about all the video game what? movies. Why has he got the out? heads up on this question? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't tell him. <laughs> and uh, I, I was just kind of looking, and there's so many video game movies in production at the moment. Um, they've got Coming Soon, Doom Annihilation, The Witcher, uh, Monster Hunter as well, but then Halo, Dynasty Warriors in development. We've got Mortal Kombat, Final Fantasy, Minecraft the movie, Metal Gear Solid, <laughs> The Division, Sleeping Dogs... Super Mario Bros, Joe. A new Super Mario nah, Bros. Nah, nah, none Possibly of, none for 2020. None of these are happening. Yeah. Let's bring it back to reality. Five, Let's bring it back to Freddy, <laughs> Mega Man. But those ones are all in development. So well, that is my all point. updates this year. So that's my point now. There's that many video game movies coming out. How are they going to make Sonic the Hedgehog stand out? By getting everyone on board, making everyone yeah. think, oh, we've changed the movie, it's our film now. We've done. Do you think that could be the case? Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. For them to be like, you know, the film's coming out on, I think the original release date was like, I want to say. November one, was it? November. Yeah. It was about now. Yeah. I'm sure it was like 15th of November or something like that, um, interestingly. And I'm sure if. If, if it was all a big marketing scheme, because you got you got to think to yourself, all the big like the cinemas and everything, all the theaters and stuff, they get ready for it. Yeah, it yeah. gets listed. It come, you know, it start, you know, your pre books and stuff like that. It seems like an awful, awful lot of money to either put into that and say it is all coming out, and then actually they're like, haha, it's not coming out, and then pull it all and lose all that money, or to not actually ever kind of throw all those feelers out to you know the, the cinemas and everything like that. If that was the case, somebody would have said something by now, in my opinion. Somebody would have turned around and said, well, actually, this, you know, they never actually sent any of the marketing material to showcase or anything. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. I just can't, I couldn't, I couldn't see that being true. But I think it's very interesting. Because, I mean, it's going to be a much bigger film now than it would have been otherwise, I think. If, yeah. if it had come out like this in the beginning, I think it might have gone under the radar a bit. But now yeah. it's huge. I think people yeah. who, uh, you know, the kind of casual gamers... You, you know know a little bit about Sonic and stuff like that oh I remember Sonic from my childhood they probably wouldn't have bothered to go see it but now yeah you're probably right mm. they're now going to be like oh actually I want to see that I want to you know oh that's that film that got all that you know that crap about it and stuff all that slack so let's go see it now let's take the kids to see it so yeah you could be right I don't know I'm torn <laughs> <laughs> normally Rav is a cynical one look at me yeah <laughs> <laughs> so if you're doing to check out the trailer the movie comes out on Valentine's Day next year uh, Sonic the Hedgehog I think it looks pretty good actually and I think Jim Carrey's going to carry the film I, yeah. I think they should do a Tim Burton Shadow the Hedgehog afterwards <laughs> really dark, dark one yeah. yeah that would be good actually yeah. for Halloween or something oh yeah. not Shadow the Hedgehog it's going to do Knuckles or something <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to check it out I'll put it in our show notes at theretrohour.com now Prince of Persia is one of my all-time favourite games. The original came out in 1990. Um, Jordan Merchner, who I think we might have on the Retro Hour podcast next year, actually. Been chatting to Jordan recently. A game that, you know, when it came out, that really groundbreaking technique of... Rotoscoping. Yeah, that was it. I mean, yeah. the way that worked is they got 
video of a real life actor, didn't they? And they kind of they kind of drew over it, yeah, and uh, a lot like an animation, kind of doing each each frame with each cell, you know. Yeah, they traced over him, didn't they? And it looked incredible. And I remember, I think the first time I played that game. I was a kid and I went to uh, my cousin's house mm. and her husband, he was in a band and he was out one night and they had like a music room upstairs and they went up there and they had like an old like 386 PC or something yeah. and they had like a black and white screen on it. I remember I just turned it on and started messing around with it <laughs> and then I saw, did like, you know, the DIR slash W and DOS and I saw Pop and I thought, I wonder what that is and it was Prince of Persia. I was like, oh, wow. And I sat there all night playing it and yeah. like, you know, they came up leaving to it. But I remember what an atmospheric game Prince of Persia was. And oh, that was yeah. like one yeah. of my favorite childhood experiences playing that when I was like, you know, nine, ten years old. So there's lots of systems that it's come out on. And obviously the franchise continues really to this day. Yeah. There's been loads of different, you know, HD upgrades of it, storyline developments and that kind of thing. But the original game, even though it came out on a load of different platforms, it never came out on the Intellivision. Now it turns out fans, this is a guy called uh, Matthew Keel, who's the main guy behind it, have now done a port of the original Prince of Persia to the Intellivision console. This looks really, really fluid as yeah. well, which is great because, uh, you know, I've, I've played some Prince of Persia ports that when they're slow, they're so hard to play because it's all about that running and jumping just yep. in time. So having this on the uh, Intellivision is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Have we got actual evidence that this is running on the real hardware because obviously the, the thing we can now see... Now he's been cynical. Now I'm being cynical. You're rubbing <laughs> off on me because of the clip we've got here is obviously it's just on like the CRT TV yeah, yeah. and it does. It looks really, really fluid and really, really nice and I'm just like, is... I know these games come out when, you know, we, we people making homebrews and stuff like that these days. They always push the console to its absolute limitations and all this kind of stuff. But that looks really good for the yeah. television. <laughs> really <laughs> good. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, we've seen a lot of that recently. I mean, who'd have thought we'd see, like, you know, um, Pinball Fantasies on the Amstrad and look yeah, at that it's, good. it's like, you're, you're right, all these people develop techniques over the time. Yeah. And I guess that becomes the standard or the really yeah, high yeah. quality um, coding. You I know? mean, the moment it is only a little video, like you said, there's no download link or anything like that. And it's um, it's far from finished by the looks of it. There's no kind of ETA when it's going to be out. But it's like the, the main elements of the game are there, you know, the, the fluid animation, which is really key to the gameplay of Prince of Persia. And you've got to be careful of those kind of rattly loose floors that you yeah, can fall yeah. through and landing on the spikes and stuff. Pretty brutal game, but um, yeah, I mean, when this comes out, it does look a really incredible feat for the Intellivision. So keep up the good work. I believe in this, Joe, not like you. <laughs> so I'll put that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, of course, 2020 is not far away now. We're getting set for a big one. Play Expo Manchester is going to be back. And we will be there as well. Now, it's going to be happening uh, a new venue, Bowler's Exhibition Centre, on the 9th and 10th of May, 2020. Now, if you haven't been to a Play Expo before, give us a lowdown, Joe. What's good about Play? What's good about Play? Well, essentially, Play is, for the Manchester one, is just the biggest kind of community of retro gamers all in one place and there's going to be an absolute huge array of just arcade games all the games you grew up playing from 70s 80s 90s early 2000s all in one place you usually pay i don't know how much tickets are sorry but you usually pay to go in you get complete access to all of these and then also you have the absolutely amazing guests where yep. you have a panel where they'll be doing talks throughout the entire weekend non-stop all these you know gaming celebrities talking about talking about the games they've worked on the history of the games talking about what they're doing now really really interesting stuff and then my heaven the bit I absolutely love is the massive retro gaming marketplace hall. Usually the biggest one in the UK. You can find anything from the Atari 2600 all the way up to PS4. 
you name it, it's going to be there. It's absolutely amazing. And uh, that's where you normally spend all your money, but obviously not for your wife ever. Here's this episode. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that's usually where I kind of beeline to spend a load of money and then go play in the arcades for the weekend. Yeah. <laughs> Always an amazing weekend. It's going to be back next year, the 9th and 10th of May. Got plenty of notice. Tickets for it have just gone on sale. And of course, we'll give you more details. I'm sure there'll be a chance on this show to win some tickets over the f- next few months as well. So you want to check out all the information about that, playexpomanchester.com. Now, an interesting story this week, a little bit maybe too modern for this show, but, I mean, it is kind of going back to roots. The PlayStation 5 might be using cartridges. Yeah, I was reading up on this earlier on because Dan sent me this yesterday, and I was like, nah, that's that's toughy, that is, whatever that word is. That's, <laughs> that's not real. Why would they go back to cartridges? But this is a really interesting link, um, a really interesting story. So, essentially, on November 5th, there was a patent in Japan for a, I think it says it was a games console accessory. I think it makes sense if it's like an SSD or or a high-capacity kind of storage thing because I think Blu-ray, you kind of... It takes so long to install stuff. Even with an SSD, it's 10 times quicker than reading a physical kind of drive, you know. I find that with, you know, the Switch is obviously cartridge-based. I mean, the games are smaller than, you know, PS4, PS5 games, I imagine. But... I do like the fact that an update on the Switch will take like 20 seconds. Yeah. Whereas, you know, we, we tried to play the new Call of Duty over the weekend, me and my brother, and like, it had like an 80 gigabyte install. It took 11 hours for me to oh, download Modern yeah. Warfare. Ridiculous. Yeah. Like, so, yeah. so the guy who's invented this, who's, you know, put his name to this at the patent, is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher this now, Eugene Mawasawi. Right. Now, he is the senior art director at Sony Interactive Entertainment. So that's where they kind of like what's the word I'm looking for? The the credence kind of the credence okay, comes yeah. comes from. So that's why people are thinking, oh maybe this is actually real. So and it does. It looks like it looks like to me like the tall fake um Sega Mega Drive cartridges or the EA kind of Sega Mega Drive yeah, cartridges. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like a tall one. So it's really interesting. Ravi was saying about it earlier on, you know, but like yeah, Ravi it says, looks it, quite nicely designed actually. Quite does. curved on the edges yeah. and stuff, you know. So, but like it, a Sony product. But like yeah, you say, yeah. it might not actually be a games cartridge, it could be some sort of accessory. Well, oh, that could be a whole console. They could build something into a cartridge. Yeah, you never, you never know. know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know what's crazy, though, is I remember, you know, when you think back in the day when the first PlayStation came out, how praised it was for using discs. And now the N64 got slated, oh, it's using cartridges. It's like yeah. old tech. Now, like, you know, 20 years later, we've come full circle. <laughs> yeah, it's Pretty crazy. Nuts. So we'll keep an eye on that. Now, before we get into our guest this week, a little new um, section of the show that we thought we'd talk about. Because often we look at videos and we read articles and we go to events that we think we want to kind of mention on the show but maybe they don't warrant a full news story we thought we'd do a little retro recommendations each week so these are the kind of things that we've seen in the retro gaming community and uh, this week i want to talk about a game called blast away okay now if you check this out have you seen anything about this game no no now, this is a really high energy shooter um that's kind of inspired by those old school kind of you know early early 80s early 90s kind of games. A bit like the Chaos Engine, actually, it reminds me of a little bit. Okay. Pixel art, it's really, really pacey. It's awesome. It is, it's a really addictive game. And this runs on modern systems on uh, Windows, I mean, you can run Windows XP onwards, but also they're going to port to Amiga OS 4 as well. Okay. And the other guy might be doing a Morph OS uh, port of it too. So this is a little game, and essentially you can download it, you can pay what you want, you can name oh, your own yeah, price. I've got it here now. Yeah. It looks quite nicely it looks done like, as well. Um, it looks like Smash TV. 
Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 for yeah, the Mega yeah. Drive and SNES. So, good little so, blaster yeah, good if you just want blaster, something, yeah. you know, bit your own price, support indie developers. Yeah, brilliant. And you've been watching uh, a guy called Sega Lord on YouTube. Sega Lord X, okay. yeah. He's, um, you know, I, I discovered him a couple of months ago, and he's he's got about 30,000 subscribers at the moment, so doing quite well for himself. Um, and he's, a, as you can imagine in the name, Sega Lord X, he's an American guy. He might, could be Canadian, apologies, but I'm pretty sure he's an American guy. Um, who just... He doesn't just review Sega, but he loves, loves, loves the Sega. Um, and this week I've been watching his video, Open, it's called Open B-O-R, Games You Need to Play, which is Beats of Rage. Ah, yes. Yeah? yeah. So essentially... Free like, implementation, isn't yes, it? Yes, free yeah. implementation using the Streets of Rage 2 game engine. Um, and pretty much he's just, you know, it's a 10-minute video and he's just going through all these amazing kind of like homebrew beat-em-ups, which are all in the vein of Streets of Rage 2, but they've all got their own sprites and skins. And it's not just like, oh, it's the Streets of Rage 2 levels and then you get to play as the Simpsons characters from the Simpsons arcade. It is like proper built from the ground up just using the game engine game. And there's some really interesting ones in there where people have rebuilt like Double Dragon in it and stuff like that and just made a really nice looking version of Double Dragon 4. Um, and there's like a He-Man game and stuff like that. So I really remember interesting playing video. an Asterix one. Yeah, on exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he yeah. just kind of goes through them all. So really interesting video. Check him out if you're into that kind of stuff. And you've been watching Pixel Vixen. Yeah, so Pixel Vixen, a.k.a. Vicky, is pretty amazing. She does uh, Deluxe Paint, which was one of the early EA's first product, actually. Uh, okay. Used for a lot of game development. And she does kind of manga art. Oh, yeah. But she does tutorials online, like how to draw pixel art backgrounds, how to do this, and she'll do live live stream drawing, which is just really fantastic to see. And there's lots of little effects, shaders, how to copy stuff, how to get perspective right, and animation, which is really useful to have on YouTube, actually. So check her out, Pixel Vixen. She's ridiculously talented, yeah. isn't she? Yeah, it's crazy what she can do with like an, an Amiga 600 and D-Bank. So you want to check out any of those videos and stuff that we talked about, everything that we've spoke about this week will be in our show notes at theretrohour.com. And uh, while we're talking about the amazing retro gaming community as well, let's give a huge thank you to those people who've made it into the Hall of Fame this week. Now, getting into the Hall of Fame, easy, isn't it, Ravi? Yeah, you just go to theretrohour.com, you press support, and then you use any of our services, and you can kind of donate to us in any currency as well which is fantastic and you can even do reoccurring payments yeah now we're going into uh, 2020 and that's obviously really appreciated and let's just keep doing the show every week for you now this week we want to say a huge thank you to Matthew Martin Michael Reynolds Daniel Waddington and Greg Girk who all made donations into the running of the show and you can do the same on our website at theretrohour.com Right then, the bit of the show that we've really been looking forward to. Let's get on this week's guest. We've got so much to cram into this interview. And welcome on, Shahid Amel. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time for our favourite bit of the show when we welcome on this week's very special guest. Today we're going to get some incredible stories over the next hour. Um, bless us get straight into it and welcome on this week's special guest welcome to the show Shahid hello thank you for having me great to have you on now uh, before we get into you know these incredible games that you've worked on kind of dating from uh, you know the, the earliest games that we can remember on like you know systems like the Commodore 64 what kind of got you started in video games and do you remember where like you, you first saw them when you first played them yeah I was in a hotel a bed and breakfast that was owned by the parents of a friend of mine at school and this was your typical 70s decor um, in Paddington, you know, Paisley everywhere. And it was hideous, basically. But at the time, it was amazing. Anyway, so at the end of one of the corridors below the stairs, one day 
appeared this great big slab of tech like someone had planted something from the future and it was a space invaders machine wow and i went over to it and i remember the first time i played or one of the first times i played because you know how memory plays tricks with you i'm old enough for that to happen it was just profound because for the first time in my life what i experienced was here's a tv obviously right it's got stuff going on on it yeah seen that before but here are some controls I didn't know what controls were. Nobody knew what controls were back then. But if you do this, something happens on the screen. Now, I cannot get across to you the profundity of that world-shaking experience. Because up until then, the paradigm was people pipe stuff down onto the telly and you watched it. And that was great. You know, TV was great. It was the only entertainment we had uh, when we were kids. And we had two and a half channels when i was a kid yeah because bbc2 wasn't even on all the time <laughs> and uh, there's no nighttime telly forget about that my god when nighttime telly came that was just beautiful so nocturnal people like me could really enjoy it but yeah this so this space invaders machine i was able to uh, it sounds pathetic now right here we are in 2019 but you gotta remember nobody had ever in real time had an effect on what was happening on a TV screen. So here's a kid with this slab of tech that looks frankly like a TV in a great big box, but controlling what's happening on the screen. And that was the first profound experience. The second profound experience was when these games started to get more complicated. So then there was Galaxian and Galaxian was like, oh my God, they're coming down at you and they're <laughs> swooping and it. Oh, oh my god that, no i'm dead and that's like seven eight seconds of gameplay and you know you've lost your first ship so that was a profound change because up until then you just thought well you know what it's just going to be green stuff and it you know it wasn't even green because they would overlay colors on the screen to make it look a different color yeah fake color yeah but it didn't matter the the, the important thing was you were controlling the stuff on the screen now that's when everything changed for a lot of people. But there was absolutely no concept of being able to do that yourself. It was a case of some wizards somewhere have sold their souls to the devil and made a deal with a bunch of aliens. They've created this in some Area 51 laboratory, and we are the happy beneficiaries. So really, there was no sense of, oh, I, I could get into this, I could do this or whatever. That came much, much later. So with that all in mind, what was your first kind of like home gaming experience and how did that feel when you got your first kind of home computer? Well, back in those days, my family was dirt poor and I mean dirt poor. So we would uh, we would get this thing from you would ask our mum to get something. It'd be like 10, 15 quid from Argos, which was a fortune back then. And she would get some kind of really awful character based it wasn't even character based but um kind of it wasn't even an arcade thing you know it didn't plug into the telly it was before then it was one of those standalone units that moved these probably just turned lights on and off you know and we had that and we played that for about a day and then the next day went back to argos because um you know it's too much 15 quid was too much right <laughs> we had our fun it was it was crap so 
you know, give me the Space Invaders. But then after that, I really, really, really wanted the Atari VCS. Mm. But but my dad said no. My my dad wasn't with us at that time. Not saying he was dead. He was divorced. Um, but you know, he had obviously had more money than my mum. So I'd say, look, I really, really want this. And it was just no, 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 no. And so my dreams gradually started to die as I'd notice other friends would have an Atari VCS and they'd be playing these games. And they weren't arcade quality or anything, but it didn't matter. They were in the home. Yeah. And that was a real groundbreaker. You know, we, we once had this Pong thing. I think we kept that for all the four or five days before that went back to Argos as well. Because it's kind of boring, you know, you play that and it's it's a bit pants and it goes back. And frankly, I would have rather used my car wash money to go and play in the arcades because mm. the experience was just so much better. Even back then, there was a distinction, you know, this game is way better quality than that game. And really, the stuff that you get home is awful. It's black and white. It's lame. Um, it's cheap. And it isn't nearly as much fun. And you don't have that thrill either. You know, you went into an arcade, um, late 70s, and there were all these machines. So there was a variety as well. And they were all just so amazingly powerful and capable that the home stuff didn't compare. Uh, And we're talking about stuff that was way, way worse than the Atari VCS. So, you know, the VCS would have been a bit better, but it still wasn't anything like the stuff you get in the arcades but yeah it was nice sometimes i'd go and go to a, a friend's house and uh he would have an atari VS, vcs and we'd play on that and it was just amazing a lot of things changed you know in the early 80s in britain for um kids that were into games and technology when uh sir clive sinclair brought out the the spectrum that was you know real game changer um you you were a big fan of the spectrum enormous yeah so that's what changed my life a friend of mine jeff foley during a physics class before we broke up for the summer holidays, gave me this leaflet. And up until then, the only machines we had at school were research machines, great big, you know, black and white, gray, beige, whatever boxes. And if you wanted to draw graphics on the screen, I think the resolution was 64 by 32 and you plotted a block and that was that. And uh, he gave me this leaflet and the leaflet was for the announced but not released ZX Spectrum. And I looked at that and something changed inside me because you know the leaflet boasted about arcade quality graphics it was color it had 48k of ram it could have 48k of ram you got to understand friends around me had zx81s and they had 1k zx81s until they bought their precious 16k ram packs that weren't that stable anyway but you know you didn't have proper graphics on the zx81 you had to fake graphics on the spectrum it looked like you could have proper graphics and they were color graphics and this thing had power beyond the dreams of avarice so i was utterly possessed by that leaflet and i went away and started begging and begging begging my mum to let me buy a computer um and you know she kind of she ignored me because you know let's face it we're dirt poor she's not going to buy me a computer and i i begged and begged and said i'd do absolutely anything i would iron all the clothes and wash all the dishes and whatever for six weeks of the summer holidays if she'd get me this thing. And I'd never asked for anything like this before. Um, And so I did my research. And, you know, once I get into something, I'd really, really, really get into something. And I I looked around and I thought, well, Spectrum's neat, but it's not out yet. But 
here's something that is. And it was an Atari 400. Mm. And the Atari 400 had the benefit of having Star Raiders. Now, Star Raiders was the greatest game of all time. Still, for me, it's still the greatest game ever made. The greatest technical accomplishment, the greatest gameplay experience, uh, the greatest difficulty curve, the greatest replay value, the greatest bang for buck, um, everything. It had absolutely everything that game. It had tactics, it had strategy. Um, you know, you, you could be totally badass at that game and do things like play the entire game without using your flight computer, without having any shields. And if you could do that and get Star Commander Class 1, you were in own league and nobody could touch you. And of course, yes, I did eventually do that, but it took me months. Anyway, we're, we're fast forwarding a bit here. The thing that happened first was, for some reason, one day my mum said, all right, let's go and have a look at this thing. And we went to the silica shop, I think it was. Um, there was a little silica shop franchise above some other shop in Red Line House in Tottenham Court Road, which I don't know if anyone's familiar with, but mm. I'm sure a lot of retro people are familiar with that place. We went over there. She got her credit card out and she bought me an Atari 400 with a tape deck and Star Raiders at a total cost of, I don't know, around 400 quid. Wow. I think she even wow. got me the basic as well. Yeah, 430 quid in the end, which was a lot of money in yeah. 1982. Yeah, a lot of money. Especially for a single mum. Uh, especially for a dirt poor family, especially considering my pocket money at the time was, I know, five quid a week from my dad. Mm. Um, and that had to cover everything. So it covered my bus fare to school and all of that. So, you know, five quid seemed like a lot of money. But actually, in the face of that Atari expense, it was obviously nothing. And I was never going to save that kind of money. That must have felt like all your birthdays came at once. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was more than that. Yeah. It utterly changed every. It changed my life course. You know, I, I, A, I don't know if I'd still be alive because, you know, I'm a type 1 diabetic, not very well controlled. But this gave me a purpose at a time when my diabetes was in really, really bad shape. That you know, purpose gives you so much energy. It gives you life, you know. So, yeah, it was more than that. It was more than every Christmas coming at once because that's just like getting something really great. But this is something that completely changed the course of my life the purpose of my life and I, I remember spending 72 hours at a time learning to program that thing and when I say 72 hours I mean without any sleep without any food all I'd have is black coffee and I'd sit in front of that machine probably not the best way to manage a type 1 diabetes or any condition or even manage life for that matter <laughs> but my god I was I was utterly captivated so what was I going to do well you said you kind of started coding and i was looking at your credits and one of the kind of first titles was a port of um jet set willy which was a fantastic title for the zx spectrum uh, it was a port for the commodore 64 um how did you manage to kind of land that job and um were you really excited to be porting such a big title yeah i probably landed it because of my exceptionally big gob um even back then i had uh, the gift of a gab i guess some people might call it bullshit. I'd prob I probably agree looking back. So what happened? So I took a game. I, I pitched a game to Software Projects that was on the Commodore 64. So this is after I'd spent a bit of time on the Atari. Um, what else had I done? I'd done a couple of other projects. I'd shipped a couple of titles by then. But yeah, I, I pitched something to them on the Commodore 64. And you know, a lot of people had been doing four-step animations uh, pretty much everyone was doing four-step animations. This is basically four sprites for those who aren't technical. 
showing uh, a figure in different poses so that if you flip between them like a flip card book you get what appears to be an animation and back in those days we're talking about early 80s it was four step well i did a commodore 64 game that had 16 step animation which looked incredibly smooth and that was basically it you know the gameplay was pretty poor and i showed them this and they said yeah yeah we'll publish this but they must have had their eye on something else so they kind of uh, took me to a Chinese restaurant, which was the greatest thing that ever happened to me in my life up up until that point. Oh, second only to getting the Atari 400. Because what kid from a council estate gets to go to a Chinese restaurant when they're, what, 17? Um, which is amazing, you know. Uh, so I got treated quite well by those day standards. And then they took me around the office and they showed me a version of Jet Set Willy running on the Commodore 64, not quite running on the 64, I think they showed me some screens. They said, well, tell you what, uh, a guy's been working on this for six months and it's nowhere near ready yet. Still got a lot to do. If you can port Jet Set Willy from the Spectrum to the Commodore 64 in one month, we'll give you 3,000 pounds. Well. <laughs> and if you can do it in three weeks, we'll give you 4,000. That's quite the motivator, I imagine. Yeah. I had advances up until then from, from previous projects, but they were in the hundreds. So to be offered that amount of money was, frankly, I, you know, I would have done it for nothing. <laughs> because, <laughs> they don't need to Jeff know that. <laughs> Willy, you know, this, this is a game that cost me my A-levels. It was one of two, actually. Sabre Wolf cost me one A-level and... Um, and Jet Set Willy cost me the other. And Jet Set Willy was so extraordinary that I would just leave it on all night on the Spectrum, which drove everyone mad. So I'd have to put a cushion on top of the Spectrum because it'd be playing the beat beat version of Moonlight Sonata <laughs> constantly, you know. But I would leave it on all night so that when I got up in the morning, um, sorry, when I got up in the afternoon, because I was up till <laughs> six, uh, I would be able to carry on playing exactly where I left off. That's fantastic. Uh, you know, without having to load it. But yeah, so they offered me this, and I did it. I did it in three weeks and four days, I think. They gave me the 4K, and uh, uh, that was really brutal because, you know, my my mouth was more ambitious than, than really my ability. Um, and even in that time, it was a very, very difficult job because... And I hate to blame bad tools, but there really were no good assemblers for the Commodore 64 at the time. And the people at Software Projects who were working on stuff were using a Sage already at that time to cross-assemble for the Commodore 64, which seemed to be the sensible way of doing it. I was making Jet Set Willy on a Commodore 64 with a 1541 drive, which, as you know is slower than a 300 bits per second modem. Yeah. And that's very, very slow. Okay, it's not quite that slow, but it was extremely slow. And the assembler I used was absolute pants. And I wasn't very good, you know? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> this is very, very early in my career. So I said I could do it. But the thing is, if they'd given me a couple more weeks, it would have been absolutely spot on. But they had to get it out. They had deadlines. They had orders. You know, they're already placed. And this other guy is already really, really late. And I'd done the whole thing in the time that they wanted. And they sold a million units and I got 4K. I was so demoralized afterwards. Mm. I don't know why. I think it was partly because 
it almost destroyed me doing that because, you know, I would be not eating. I'd be sleeping over at their offices because I, I did, did most of the work from home. But there were a couple of visits up there because uh, I wanted to see progress. And I would sleep in the office, not eat. Um, you know, the first visit, I got the hotel treatment, right? the bed and breakfast treatment somewhere in Allerton. I think I got to stay. Or was it the Wirral? No, it was on the Wirral. There's a nice B&B in the Wirral. But the next time I came working on Jet Set Willie, it was no office couch for me. Um, so it was really, really hard. Because you've got to remember, I was a kid, 17 years old. I've never mm. done any real work in my life. And I've got to deliver this really critical, high-profile project. It was the highest-profile project in the country at the time. And they were trusting some 17-year-old kid from a council estate who had a big mouth to do it. And I thought, I, I got to do this. I can't let them down. But if only I'd had a couple of more weeks, it would have been great. So after that, I felt broken. Um, broken partly because I really wanted to give it a bit more time. But of course, I didn't know anything about hitting dates and, and all of that. And they, they were adamant that they had to have it for a certain time. I helped them to meet their, their goal. Um, but my goal was, well, I didn't really have one. I've done this. Now what? You've just converted the most important video game on the face of the earth. Do you know what I mean? So that, that was really, really hard. Uh, yeah. Really tough for a 17-year-old kid to handle. I had more money than I knew what to do with, but that didn't mean anything when I didn't know what I was going to do with the rest of my life. So my friend said, well, just go back and do your A-levels, you know, find a job and whatever. And I thought about it for a while and I got a bit depressed. And yeah, I got really, really depressed. So I would not surface from my room for days on end. And this sounds really, really morbid, but it's not meant to be because it ends really well. And here's how it ends. It ends with me seeing Night Law on the Spectrum. Okay. And when I saw that, everything that I loved about video games came back to me because it was so gobsmackingly audacious. It was so in your face what the actual, you know, you just look at this and you think it was more than the shock of playing the video game Space Invaders in that B&B &B in Paddington all those years before. It was a bigger shock than that. But, you know, my thought wasn't, after that, if, after the initial shock wore off, I called up my friend, Jeff Foley, the one who gave me the Spectrum leaflet, and I said, you're not going to believe what I'm seeing. And he said, I don't believe it. And so he came over and had a look, and he said, I don't believe what I'm seeing. Neither of us believe what we, did, what we were seeing. So from that point, it wasn't a case of how the hell are they doing that. It was, hmm, how would I do that? <laughs> and that is what led to Chimera, which is probably the game I'm best known for from the 80s and i started working on that and that eventually came out i think in may 85 and that was really the breakthrough after that everything uh, everything changed for the better the floodgates opened and more and more work came my way um i did nightshade for for ultimate through firebird um then they wanted ultimate wanted me to convert night law and alienate and I said, oh, yeah. So they sent me this enormous box full of tapes of every single game that they'd done on every single platform. Now, that was Christmas. <laughs> you know, every single, sadly, all of those games and everything that I worked on up until, say, 87 got stolen from an office in northwest London. Uh, wasn't insured, which is a real shame because basically everything, all my computers, all of my backups all of my source code all of the games i'd ever bought and there were hundreds and hundreds of of games in that collection but the thing that hurt the most was losing all of the ultimate stuff because that was amazing but anyway so um 
at one point they wanted me to come to their offices and talk to them about bringing my new game to them converting night law and alienate and then i thought oh my god my life is changing this is crazy i've got all this money i'm still young i was 18 at the time um things are awesome um what do i do so i asked people for advice and they said you need to get an agent so i got an agent um my agent then wrote to ultimate and then i never heard from them again um and i actually got to speak to tim stamper i met him for the first time a few years ago while i was at playstation and i said listen tim i've got to ask you <laughs> all those years ago when you stopped talking to me was it because i put an agent in touch with you and he said yes no worries I said, you, you, you didn't deal with agents, right? And he said, correct. And I said, you do know that I would have dumped my agent if you told me to. And he just, <laughs> he just shrugged his shoulders. <laughs> like 30 years had passed. But yeah, that, that was probably my biggest regret. Well, I mean, you were, you were working with Fiverr, and they were a big label. I mean, you know, they're a very interesting label. We've done an episode about them before, you know, with the involvement from BT and the, the post office. And, I mean, you were working on a game called Pandora. The, I read there was actually hidden from release when Fiverr were trying to do a management buyout to kind of play down the value of the company. Yes. What, so what a, a lot of people were saying that at the time, that basically what they did was they killed marketing on all the games that they were launching at that point because they wanted to reduce the value of the company to make it easier for them to do a management buyout. That's pretty much what happened. So, um, I mean, Pandora was going to be one of their biggest games. You know, they had lots of big games at the time um, leading up to that point, and this is going to be really big. Um, and the other thing that, that was really frustrating was that they held on to the Commodore 64 version for a year, which I think hurt its reviews. They wanted to wait for the Amiga and ST versions to come out. But yeah, I mean, it was a really unusual, very innovative game that not everyone appreciated but a few people gave it like five out of five reviews we got some nine out of tens we got some pretty awful reviews as well um but i think they were mainly for the 64 version and mainly because i was an idiot uh, about how the game started so you basically you move when you start and you die um and you're supposed to wait and i thought that was funny and of course it was stupid i mean why did i do that i don't know but um once people got beyond that they really they really appreciated what we were trying to do. I mean, those characters were were properly interactive. They had likes and dislikes. They liked certain things. They liked certain people. They had relationship networks. And if you did something to someone, people would find out. Um, fights were more likely if you'd upset someone's friend. Um, trades were more likely if you had not. Uh, there were multiple endings, multiple paths. You know, it was it was a smart game for 1986. But sadly, came out 87, 88 eventually. Um, and if it come out 87 when it should have done um, on, on the 64, I suspect it would have had much better marketing and it would have done brilliantly. Um, but we waited for the Amiga and ST versions. And my biggest regret with the Amiga, and I, I, I don't want to talk about regrets. It, it was a good game. Could have been better. But my biggest regret was because the ST was more important the ST had burst scrolling, so you'd get to the edge and it would scroll three tiles or something like that, and it was awful. And I copied that for the Amiga, and the Amiga could have smooth scrolled the whole thing, would have been a much better game. Um, but apart from that, you know, it, it was nice enough. Well, but yeah, Ultimate wanted to sign that one, and I turned them down. I said, I've already agreed verbally to do it for Telecomsoft. That was another stupid decision. <laughs> 
Well, some of our listeners might recognise you from Bedrooms to Billions, the Amiga years, and uh, Viva Amiga. You talk very passionately about the system. I mean, the, the industry, going back to the 70s, mid-70s and on, was punctuated by several cataclysmic events. I mean, cataclysmic not in a negative sense, but in the sense that the entire worldview was shattered and reshaped in those moments. And I think, for me, if we're talking about these huge asteroid strikes in my life, they would have been that Space Invaders machine, Star Raiders on the Atari 400, Night Law on the Spectrum. Um, and then from there, fast forward to the Amiga. Because up until that point, we had 8-bit computers. Yeah, so 8-bit processing is is not particularly powerful because you only have, you can only represent values from 0 to 255 which means you've got to do a lot of stuff to make anything interesting at all. Whereas the Amiga, this is just the beginning, by the way, the Amiga had, so we're talking about processors, had a 16-bit um, architecture, but 32-bit internally. So what that means is suddenly you can handle numbers up to 4 billion. So suddenly you're not worried anymore. I mean, we tried to handle as much as possible in 16-bit because that was the width of the bus and it made things a lot quicker. But you could do do things in 32-bit because the 68,000 processor on its own was such a leap forward. So that's just a CPU. But then you've got this architecture because you've got to remember the ST was out around the same time. And the only thing good about the ST was that monochrome screen and the MIDI ports, mm-hmm. right? Everything else was... Yeah, guys, you you failed, you know, um, because oh, we're, we're going to get tweets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I I had both, and I worked on both, and you know, I I knew my hardware back then, and it wasn't like I was against the Atari. You got to remember, I was the Atari guy. I started on an Atari, so just by loyalty alone, I should have. And of course, anyone who knows anything about computers knows that I'm being slightly disingenuous here because the Atari team actually moved on to make the Amiga. Yeah. Yeah. And the Amiga had the Blitter. The Blitter was oh my god, the Blitter moved around an insane number of bits and it did it all for you. So you didn't have to optimize stuff yourself. It had multiple bit planes and you could gang them up anywhere you wanted and you could interleave the screen however you wanted. And then on top of that you had the copper. We could generate display lists on the fly and do all kinds of things from um, from sev- from a group of pixels at a time to another group of pixels. So you didn't have to run instructions using the copper on every scan line. You could do it every few pixels, which meant that you could do insane things on the screen. Add, hold, and modify mode. You know, so you could have 4,096 colors theoretically on the screen at the same time. And you had digitizers that would allow you to capture a picture and represent it in a way that had never been seen before. So you had all of that. And then you had the most amazing audio chip ever, and some of the best music you'll ever hear is on the Amiga. You had four 8-bit sound channels. Was this 8-bit? Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. Was, was. It was four 8-bit. I should know because I wrote music drivers for the thing. <laughs> but, you know, um, I'm getting on a bit. So we're, we're going way back and I haven't got any notes. So this is all from memory. But you can tell it's had an enormous impact on me. So all of this stuff combined to make what? Basically a workstation 
an order of magnitude more powerful than anything else available at the time because all of this stuff was engineered so beautifully it all sat together so well where do i even start it was just crazy that you'd go off on one trying to work out what it could and couldn't do and the answer basically at the beginning was this machine can do absolutely anything and the absolutely anything that you're thinking of is probably only 1% of what it will actually end up doing. And you know what? We were right. That's how it turned out. For me, the Amiga was the biggest breakthrough computer in history. There's never been anything like it since. There was never anything like it before. The closest was the Atari 400, but the Atari 400, even that was flawed for its time. You know, it had um, pretty low spec 6502. It's 2 megahertz 6502. But unlike the Commodore 64, which had half the processing speed, you didn't have decent sprites. So, you know, you were kind of hobbled. I mean, yeah, you had a bit more control over the color, a bit more control over the way the display was done. So there were compromises. The Amiga felt like there were no compromises. Now, I know that seems funny for people who are looking at it and go, oh, mate, that's a 320 by 200 screen or whatever it was, you know. And well, what are you even talking about? But what they don't appreciate is you could do anything you wanted with that using any number of 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 its amazing custom processors in any kind of order you wanted and really your your imagination was the limit with with that new technology kind of getting into the 32-bit era the game started to turn into huge productions and uh you started working with virgin interactive uh did you notice like teams getting a lot bigger and kind of lots of elements like the sound growing uh some of the games you worked on were Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, Itchy and Scratchy. Oh, my God. Uh, I, I really had hoped you wouldn't discover those skeletons. Right. So to begin with, on the Amiga, there was Pandora. And I worked with David Eastman on that. But we worked on the 64 version as well. Uh, we had a musician I uh, can't remember who we used for Pandora. I think it was David Whittaker uh, did the music for Pandora. I'm not sure if he did the 64 music. I, th- I think Rob Hubbard did the 64 music and David Whittaker did the Amiga music. And we worked with Terry Greer on the art. So we were already into uh, a team situation by the late 80s. But then uh, David and I continued to work on his projects. So we worked on Conflict and Floor 13. And that was on PC... Amiga, I think Floor 13 was ST as well. And then after that, I worked with Bits. And Bits was a developer in Northwest London. And initially, I did a lot of music there. And then eventually, I was technical producer, which kind of like ended up being um, the MD's pretty much right-hand man towards the end of my stay there. And I ran... At the beginning, just a music department, and then eventually I was running a, a project called New Day, which at its peak in the mid-90s had, I think it was over 100 people, if you counted all the all the actors and everyone involved, which for the mid-90s was probably the biggest team in the world at the time. And if you're wondering what happened to New Day, well, it got featured on Tomorrow's World, got featured in The Telegraph, and then it got cancelled. So that that was a sad ending, but it was really innovative game uh, with innovative technology which sadly didn't see the light of day but yeah the team sizes just kept growing and growing and growing and that was definitely a feature of 
I'd say from the late 80s onwards. And we were there at the beginning with the trend towards needing to work with more people because as the computers became more capable, suddenly your skills as a multidisciplinarian were no longer good enough because it would be a lot more visible or it'd be a lot more audible. Yeah, so you'd want people who are really good at one thing or the other. So the specialization started to really come into play because people would notice, right? If you did, if you did average graphics on a spectrum, who cares? There are only so many combinations of eight by eight pixels in, in a character space that you can do. So you make a mistake here and there, people aren't going to notice. But the thing is, you've got to remember, even then, even in the spectrum days, if you think about what the likes of um, Ultima Play the Game were doing, you had Chris Stamper working on the code, and then you had uh, Tim and others working on the art, and those characters were beautifully drawn, even though they were monochrome. So you could tell even then, but by the time you got to the Amiga, you could really, really tell. And so because of that, specialization was an absolute must. Sony was kind of like the next big step for you, from what I understand. And they've got a real rich history of supporting developers, indie titles, um, and obviously they had like the Net Eurosa. How did you get involved in Sony? Was it their culture that attracted you, or did it just kind of happen? Well, before Sony, I, w I went into publishing. I wanted to learn a bit more about the industry, so I went to work for Virgin Interactive for a while, and then I worked for Hasbro Interactive for a while, and they, they were both cool places to work. Um, but yeah, I had, I had a massive, I, I guess, life meltdown, an early midlife crisis, a quarter life crisis, hopefully. And so it was a pretty bad period round about 2003 to 2005 were really, really dark years for me. So basically, Sony was like a, a, a calm port in a storm, as, as my friend and mentor Julian Lynn Evans put it to me. Uh, that's very much what it felt like. So I went there as an account manager and I thought, you know what, this is going to be a good place for me just to just to ease back into things again and see how things go. And I always wanted to work at a platform anyway, and it was a very, very cool gig to get. Uh, and other people were very happy for me. For me, it was just a case of, well, you know what, I, this, this is a chance of getting back into the industry. Because at that point, 2003, 2005, I was thinking about leaving. I'd had a startup from 2001 to 2003 called, um, excitingly enough, Start Games, uh, which was pretty big at the time, uh, got good amount of funding, but then the investors pulled the plug halfway through the plan, and uh, and that was that. So that felt like, you know, like the end of Jet Set Willy, it felt a bit like that. Um, but yeah, so going, going to Sony was a bit like a reset. It was no for me. It was nowhere near as exciting as doing Chimera after the Jet Set Willy um, downer, uh, and I don't know why I call it a downer. I was just I, I guess it was just because I was a kid. But this is a lot different, you know. Life was really really difficult at that time, so getting to Sony felt like well, you know what, this feels good going back to video games. And uh, yeah, I remember when I was told on the phone that I'd got it, walking down Piccadilly singing uh so i was definitely happy <laughs> like a scene out of a movie or something that sounds <laughs> yeah it was definitely like that you remember that was it katie tunstall suddenly i see yeah that's what i was singing right. <laughs> very badly uh, <laughs> but yeah that's what i was singing i didn't care it was late at night you know i just 
I literally walked out of a two hour interview because my first interview, I, I failed. They turned me down. But my agent at the time, Julian Lynn Evans, called them up and said, listen, you're making a mistake. You need to give them a second chance. So they gave me the hardest interviewer the company has ever had. Uh, a man uh, who's who's legendary for reducing interviewees to tears, right. males and females alike, reducing them to tears. And basically, within the first 10 seconds, I broke him. And then we spent two hours of interview time, basically having a really, really great chat. And during which they offered me the job there and then, which apparently never happened. So uh, as I rode down the lift with the HR person, the HR person was laughing and I asked her why she was laughing. And she said, I've never seen anyone do that too. I won't mention his name again. Uh, it was amazing. So, so that, that was, I guess, an element of fate. It's really funny because I, I didn't really care at the beginning. I had a very uh, lackadaisical attitude towards the whole process. Why am I interviewing? You know, why do I need to go through this? You know, don't you people know who I am? You know, a real arrogant person, uh, a real, really full of myself, even though I had absolutely no reason to be full of myself. But then this, for the second interview, I really prepared. I really, really prepared. And then when I got told yes during the interview and I was walking back down Piccadilly, singing that song, I suddenly realized, you know what? This is really, really, really what I want to be doing. I want to be in video games, and I've missed this. Well, when you were there, I mean, looking at the that kind of era, indie games, when they came around and started becoming big again, it kind of felt a bit like the rebirth of like the bedroom programmer and smaller teams and that kind of thing. I mean, was that kind of difficult to get Sony to take seriously at first, or were they <laughs> on board? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It took me six years. Wow. It took me six years. People didn't know what I was talking about, uh, and I would be rebuffed constantly. And I'd have all these ideas. We should do this. We should try that. We should do digital distribution. Blah, blah, this, blah, blah, that. We should do this kind of store, that kind of store. Before the app store existed, by the way. Um, and uh, the, uh, no, no, sorry. No, we don't do that. No, no. Uh, and things would go nowhere. And so I was beating my head against a brick wall for a long, long time. And it took me a very long time to understand why. It's because I was in the wrong department. I was in an operational department and the whole point of an operational department is you do your job and you don't rock the boat. But I'm an entrepreneur. My life is about boat rocking. If I'm not rocking boats, I'm not even alive. So eventually this was noticed by, I guess, several senior people. I was shifted to another department and my career took off. And I got to do what I wanted to do. I mean, that's cutting a very, very long story short. But suddenly, all the things that I wanted to do, I was finally able to do. And not only was that good for me, but it transformed Sony's reputation um, amongst independent developers. It transformed their reputation in the media for because of the approach to independent developers. It transformed the lineups of the Vita, the PS3, the PS4, PSVR. Um, you know, everything I was I was tasked to find content for got transformed because of that. So, it, you know, it was a strategy worth waiting for. Well, you bought, as you said, with the Vita, you bought hundreds of titles to it and also bought fantastic titles like Hotline Miami. That must have been a 
hard one to kind of convince people that it was going to be a huge success. Um, do you didn't have to. You didn't have to. No. I was given carte blanche. Because the thing is, I'd done this thing. I, I'd done PlayStation Mobile, okay. which, was, which everyone saw as a poison chalice. PlayStation Mobile was basically a C-sharp monotype environment where a game would run both on the PSP and on, on was it PSP? No, sorry, it was a Vita, and it would also run on Android Sony phones. That was PlayStation Mobile. Yeah, now you probably haven't heard of it, and neither of most people. But the fact is, because I said, I'll rise to this challenge, I'll give you what you're after, that was really deeply appreciated by um, HQ in Japan. And the reason I say that is because Andy House told me in an exec briefing that it was deeply appreciated and that if I ever went to Tokyo, there was a dinner waiting for me there. That was a good word. And I was thinking, mate, if you get me to Tokyo, that's <laughs> I'll have the dinner. But, um, but no, it, it was a very, very nice thing for him to say. He didn't have to say that in front of all the other execs. But the point is, that gave me career capital. And so when they had this problem with the Vita, which was that there was not enough software coming out for it, I got to present a plan, got to work on a plan, present a plan um, with my colleagues at the time and with my boss, my boss at the time, Anthony Clark, best boss I've ever had, completely transformed me, taught me everything um, that I know about how to get things done within a corporation and how to lead. Yeah, you know, he gave me free reign, so I was able to really run with stuff, and he just let me do it, and he, he covered up for my mistakes. You could not ask for a better boss. I had Robin Max, I had Lorenzo, my right-hand man, and we basically went in, or I went in, and gave this presentation to exec management, which was basically along the lines of, guys, 2013, you have eight titles coming to Vita. And they looked at that slide, and you could see the collective gasps and the exhalations in, in the room. And I said, if you let us do what we want to do, here's what that picture looks like. And I added 55 titles to the slide and suddenly the slide looks healthy. Now at that point, they don't care where the, where the titles are coming from. They just know that the platform isn't dead, right? Because mm. if you only have eight titles coming to a device, that dead. device is dead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't matter what the other titles are. If you have to shift, if you have to pivot, fine. But it's better than nothing coming to the device. So then, of course, they're, they're executives. They want to know what titles you're going to bring. And I said, they, they will fall into these categories, presented a number of categories, this type of game, this type of developer. These are the people we're going to go after. This is the kind of game that we want. This is the scene that we're after. And by the way, we'll get you some of yours as well. Um, there, were, you know, there were two or three slightly higher profile titles that they, they wanted me to go after. And we managed to get some of those as well. That's absolutely fantastic. So really, it sounds like you really kind of revitalized and revived the PS Vita, which is fantastic because a lot of people, you know, out there on YouTube and stuff, there's a lot of lovers uh, of the Vita. So that's really great to hear. So I've heard you now run your own studio. Tell us about your latest title. Ah, yes. So the, the game is called Virtue Reality, not Virtual Reality. And it is a game commissioned by Islamic Relief. Okay. It's a mobile game for iOS and Android. Really, I didn't want to do this to begin with. Sounds odd, right? But mm. <laughs> look, I'm a professional video game developer now. I'm not a professional Muslim, you know. Yeah. But I'm the one who got approached. I'm the one who got recommended. And I had this conversation. They said, we've got two goals here. 
The first is to get across the complexity of the operation of an international aid organization, because most people don't know what we do and how we do it and how much is involved. And our second aim, and this is where things got interesting, is to counteract some of the negative stereotypes uh, in the media around Muslims. Mm. That got me interested because I've always had a big mouth, right? As, as I said many times, I'm, I'm a lippy Muslim. I will not have any nonsense said about Muslims. I will not stand for stereotyping. I will not stand for any of that. And I used to be particularly provocative about it. I'm not anymore. haven't been for a few years. A bit gentler. I guess that's, that's the virtue of age. You kind of grow up after a while and you realize that this provocative stuff just isn't working. And they said, this is what we want. What can you do? So I went away and had a thought about, uh, and thought about it quite deeply. And I thought, you know what? I could say no, because, you know, it's a small game. It's not the kind of thing I left PlayStation to do. But that said, how many other people are experienced enough as developers to know exactly what can work in this small budget? Mm. And and how many people care as much about representation of Muslims in the media as me? How many people fit within that tiny Venn diagram? And the answer was not a lot. And so I thought, well, if I don't do it, somebody else is going to do it. And they're going to do a really bad job. And that will be that. The opportunity will be gone. So I said, you know what? Let's let's give it a go. And I came back with an idea. And the idea was basically we need to make an idle game because we can do anything else. But the reason I chose Idol was because it mapped perfectly with all of the stages of, of developments that charities like Islamic Relief undertake in the world. And the other thing is it allows you to represent, especially if you take a side on view, loads and loads of characters doing loads and loads of different things. And it was every, every shade of human being, you know, from the lightest to the darkest. And when I first saw all of his characters in one image, there were tears in my eyes and the hairs in the back of my neck were standing because, you know, that's never been done in the video game. Well, the, the men are terrorists or angry extremists with beards shouting, Allahu Akbar, and either shooting you or getting shot. Yeah, thanks, guys. Or if they're women, they're submissive or dominated or repressed or whatever. It's just, it's just BS, utter BS. So now instead, you've got this game which is accessible, easy to play, which kids have been playing and kids are going, oh, he looks like me and he's got my name. Now, I can promise you this. Those words have never been spoken in the history of video games by a Muslim boy in this country before. That brought tears to my eyes. So suddenly these kids, and it's not, it's not going to be a hugely successful game, but it'll, it's already successful for what it is in that the people who are playing it love it. It's got good reviews which is unusual for a charity game. And, um, and it does a job of getting the representation over. Of course, I had the other tertiary aim of making sure it was fun too. And that's, I guess, where the game's development experience came in. Well, it's great to have that other kind of perspective and not stereotyping the kind of typical roles within games that we usually get. It's been fantastic having you on, Shahid. And... Uh really enjoyable yeah I think we could do another like three or four hours with you the, the amount of history you, <laughs> the games you've worked on it's been fascinating chatting to you thank you so much for being our guest this week my absolute pleasure
With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.